0: Once again, welcome to Church of the Resurrection, and uh, welcome to uh, spe- especially on Trinity Sunday. If you have your Bible, go ahead and, and grab it. If you have a device, that you can pull the text up of John 4. You can use that as well. Uh, we're going to walk through this uh, first part of the story of the woman at the well, where Jesus meets her. And um, as you're getting there, John chapter 4, starting at verse 1, um, we, we need to kind of set the stage for for what's happening here and in, in this story with the woman at the well. So at the heart of every human person is this inescapable and unquenchable need and longing for communion with God. It's the heart of every person. And we experience that communion through the created world, through human relationships, and even, as Jesus says here, through spiritual direct communion with God. And Kurt Thompson, a psychiatrist, psychologist, says it this way, that we come into the world looking for someone who's looking for us. We long to be wanted, and because of this, being our greatest and our deepest end, our, our our purpose for being, our our greatest need, when it goes unmet, it's then the greatest dilemma. And we oftentimes live through life as if these other presenting problems around us are the greater dilemmas. And so a parallel here is Uh, In in the homeless community, a lot of times there's there's arguments even amongst those who care for them. What's the best way to actually care for someone who's in chronic homelessness and who's dealing with things like addiction and joblessness? And there's one school of thought who have said, like, hey, if you give them homes or you give them food or or whatever, that because of the cycle of addiction, like, they'll, they'll never be able to hold it down. So the first thing to do is to treat addiction before you ever give someone a home. But some studies have been done where they've actually like, measured this and tried to, to figure it out. And it, it turns out that the, the greatest um, success of rehabilitating someone who is in chronic homelessness is to give them a home first. That when someone is given a stable home, they're better able to fight and to battle against these other presenting problems because the deeper need there is, is a need to belong and to be settled. And so it's the same for us. We have all these different presenting problems in our lives that come out of a greater need to be at home with God. So these are all symptoms that come from sin, that broken relationship and communion with God. And so today we will see that to solve that deeper problem, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, in the form of weakness and then calls us to come to him in weakness. You see, We think that the way to, to solve for that, better, that bigger problem or that central problem is, is to fight for it, to, to, to strive our way towards it, to grasp after it, but really Christ comes to us in the form of weakness and calls us to come in the form of weakness. So let's look at it. This is how God comes to us. First, Jesus comes to us in weakness. Look at the text in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. It says, um, it gives us this background that Jesus heard, that the Pharisees heard, that they're, just, they're baptizing more disciples than John even was. And so he's getting this notoriety, and he says, hey, let's get out of here before the Pharisees come and they try to fight me because it's not yet my hour. So he gets out of there, and he's going north to Galilee to get away from Jerusalem, away from the center of power, away from Judea. And as you're going north to Galilee, there's a region in the middle called Samaria, where the Samaritans are. And Samaritans are a group of people who, when they came back from captivity, intermarried with the people who were in that place. And there, was not, there were not good relations between these people who were of mixed blood and the people who considered themselves pure Jews in the South. And so there was this, this, this region in the middle that was normally avoided that Jesus goes through. And so Jesus goes through that scene, or goes through that town, and Jacob's well is there, and look what it says in verse six. It says, Jesus, wearied, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Or uh, I had one professor who said the best translation of that is he plopped right down <laughs> on the well because it's it's this. Thus he sat. Thus he was sitting, almost like just passed out. And his disciples had been with him. They didn't bring anything to draw up water out of the well, so they go in and he's just resting there as much as you can in the brutal midday high sun in the desert. Uh, don't know if it's summer. But the intention here is to see that it is sunny, it is the middle of the day, because it says it was about the sixth hour. If you've got a a little note, I know in my my Bible at the bottom, this is helpful for you as you're reading your Bible. It says, that is about noon. Well, I don't know if you ever cut your grass in the summer in Texas, but you don't do it at noon if you can help it. You do it at 8 a.m. or you do it at 8 p.m. when it's cooled down. Um, Noon is the hottest part of the day, and Jesus is there in the heat. This is to be contrasted, by the way, with the middle of the night when Nicodemus showed up. Remember we talked about that? Nicodemus comes in the night, and this is a symbol for the ignorance that's going to be displayed. And here, Nicodemus shows up, and he immediately says, Jesus, we know that you're from God. You've done these signs. You've done these teachings. We know that no one can do these things unless he's from God. And here we have, in the middle of the day, the full light of revelation, and nobody's here to announce how great Jesus is. No one's here to to bear witness to his deeds and his signs. He shows up exhausted and falling over on a well. Thirsty. Thirsty. So at every turn, at every turn, Jesus has come in with weakness and great physical limitations in his humanity. He's come with weakness and physical limitations in his humanity, and Beyond this, he presents himself even more weak um, when he starts to ask for something in that time from a woman who is also a Samaritan. Look what it says. A woman from Samaria in, in verse seven came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, this is not a, just like woman, uh, what does this have to do with me in the, at the wedding scene in chapter two? This is not a disrespectful comment from Jesus. Like, give me a drink. It's not that, this is a request. Uh, please give me a drink. And the Samaritan says, she, she tells us, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For they have no dealings with one another. So not only uh, is it un, uh, are they unfit to be around each other, there's this cleanliness issue, but he's about to drink from her container. And as we know from the Gospels, and if you know anything about that background, is when you drink from a contaminated container, container, someone who is unclean, that makes you unclean before God. And then you can't go to worship. You can't be around your friends or family. You've got to go through the sacrifices and the washings and all this to then be made clean again. So there's literally this this divide that in the time Jesus is crossing and he is debasing himself by asking for this favor, from this help, from this Samaritan and then also from a woman. So Jesus comes in weakness, and this is true of Jesus. When Jesus is fully revealed in the light of day, he's not just revealed as this conquering uh, hero. He's not Iron Man or Superman or whatever, Uh, pick your superhero when he comes into earth. No, he's born in a manger, a cradle in the dirt, as we just sang. And uh, I'll flip over to Hebrews chapter 2. You can um, flip to that yourself, or if you can, um, I think we have it on the screen, but if not, you can flip to it with me or just listen as I read it. And in Hebrews chapter 2 is I think one of the best kind of the most succinct um, expressions of this reality that um, in verse 14, since therefore, of chapter 2, Hebrews 2, 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we're the children of God who share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing. So he took on flesh, he took on human nature and was made man. So that Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's those who believe in Jesus. Therefore, this is the key point. Check this out. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself, here's the kicker, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All of those out there. No, me, you. Christ is appearing in the form of weakness right here. And this is not an accident that in the full High noon, light, In the full revelation of who he is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's not a mistake that he comes tired and thirsty. Crossing boundaries, making himself weak and abased in order to meet this woman where she's at. So, Jesus comes to us in weakness, but then how do we come to God. So we've seen that Jesus, he's made in the form of flesh that he comes and he's weak and he, he meets this woman where she at, she's at. How do we come to God? We come to God in our weakness. There's no other way that you can come to God. You can't come to him in pride. You can't come to him in your own strength. You can't come to him in boasting. You just, you just can't. He, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And let's look at the, the story here we're supposed to see this woman at the well as a, an example, a model for how we ought to come to Christ. So, first, the woman was alone. She comes to draw water at uh, high noon and no one's there with her. You know why no one's there with her? Because no one wants to go draw water at high noon. They want to do it when it's cool, in the cool of the day. You're going to draw as much as you need for the day and then you'll go back and get some more when the sun goes down a little bit. But she's there by herself as far as we know. And then she says, how are you, a Jew, talking to me, a woman and a Samaritan? So right there, she's confessing her lowly estate. She's saying, it's it's clear that it doesn't make sense that you would cross these boundaries to come talk to someone who's in a lower estate of life socially than you are. So she's alone. She's in a lower estate of life. And then when she's talking to Jesus, he says to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. This is probably the most provocative part of this story. Um, I think certainly the most provocative part of the story. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Okay? She could have, she's veiling something. I mean, she's saying it really simply. This could mean anything, right? Either I had a husband, but I don't now. I've never been married. Um, could mean anything. Um, and then Jesus says, That's right. Um, and I know because Jesus knows everything. I know that you've had, um, you've had five husbands, and you're now with a sixth person that you're not married to. What you've said is true. And uh, sometimes it's it's made out that she says, "Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet." Like this is a, a funny sidestep. I, I think this is a. I think she's ashamed. I think she's embarrassed, and I think she's hurt. Um, but maybe not for the reasons that you've heard before or that you've that you maybe assume it's, you normally hear people say, oh man, what a promiscuous woman. Oh man, what a, um, what a sinner. Well, why would she have had five husbands? Think about this. Why would she have had five husbands? So what man in this culture where men had the ability to, I mean, they owned everything at this time. They could give someone a a certificate of divorce and say, go away. I don't want to be married to you anymore. Um, They had all the power in that relationship. Why would she have been married five times? What man would have, if she was being promiscuous and was cheating on husbands, like, who's the fifth husband that's like, sure, I'm the one you're not going to cheat on? That doesn't make sense to me. doesn't make sense to me that there's a track record of, of like, adultery or something that's marking her, that's getting her more husbands unless she's just traveling from town to town, which we don't have any reason to believe that because she apparently knows enough people in the town to bring them out at the end of the story. So, Maybe she was widowed. Maybe she'd been widowed multiple times. Maybe she had husbands who uh, left or discarded her because they had the ability to give her a certificate of divorce and go on their way. Um, maybe the man she was with was using her and didn't want to marry her and she didn't have any recourse and she needed someone to help take care of her. Um... Later in the chapter, she goes to tell the town that she's met the Messiah. And they listen to her and they come out. So she apparently is at least well-regarded enough in that town for people to say, hmm, let's go see what she's saying. She's not just some crazy loon who lives out on the streets. So something's going on here where this series of of broken or lost relationships is not just because she's some busted up promiscuous sinner. It's probably because she has been the recipient of some really difficult situations. What we know in her, of her and the culture at the time, even though that these were Samaritans, is that they were considered that they still considered the Old Testament law God's commands, and if she was promiscuous, I doubt that she would have just been a free woman at this time. So she's dismayed, and she kind of sidesteps. Why? not because she's just embarrassed or ashamed of her sin, but because I think this is really painful. I think this is really painful and she's in a really low, low place. And who is this man who's talking to me? Jesus comes as weak to those who are weak. See that? Do you see that? Yeah? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not rich in spirit. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, For the sake of Christ, Paul's speaking, he says, Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. I'm content with all those things. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Christ comes to me in my weakness and makes me strong. He says it again in chapter 13, verse 4. Um, We read it today or it was right before what we read today, he was crucified in weakness, Jesus was, but lives by the power of God. And then when he's explaining the, the, the glories of the gospel in Romans chapter five, he says, for while we were still weak, while we were weak, not when we got it all together, not when you finally quit that thing that you need to quit, not when you finally got out of debt. Not when you finally got your marriage and your friendships back together. Not when your kids were perfect and they were succeeding exactly the way that you had decided they should succeed. Not when you stopped hating yourself and oppressed people around you. No, while we were weak. While I was weak at the right time, Christ died for me, for the ungodly. And God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Christ shows himself as weak to those who are weak. This is the good news. This is, this is the gospel, by the way. So now the question is: okay, how do I become weak? How do I come as weak? How do I, how do I? Take the posture of weakness, because I'm not, you and I, and I'm the worst person in here, I'm sure, do not naturally want to appear as weak. We don't want to. We want to appear as if we have it together. We want to appear as if there's nothing wrong with us. There are billion-dollar industries dedicated to this, by the way. We do this physically, we do this mentally and psychologically, we do this professionally We do this in all kinds of ways. We want to appear as if everything's great. How do we actually have substance and become weak? Well, the first way that you can do that is confession and sin. Confession of sin and repentance. So this one's really clear and and, and really obvious. Like I think that we've, maybe you've heard this this idea before and maybe you haven't, but uh, part of, of the call to come to Jesus is, To come and die. Die to yourself. Die to your sin. Turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. There's the way of death and there's the way of life. Remember we talked about this with baptism that we turn away and we renounce the ways of the world and we turn back and we come naked to, to, to affirm the way of Christ and to take on the identity of Christ. And what does that require? That requires admitting that I have given myself over to things that I should not have. And that I was wrong. All the men say it with me. We were wrong. Wrong. I messed up. And God, I am sorry for that. That I have offended against your holy nature. We have to come. And and this is what happens when we do that. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? What happens? He is in the pigsty. I mean, he he is so... He's at the lowest point, and he says, what am I thinking? I could just go be a slave, a paid, or not even paid, a servant who lives for just food in my father's house and be way better off than what I'm doing here. And so he's rehearsing, okay, I got to come back and say, Lord, I, or Father, I've sinned against God and against you, and um, I don't deserve to be called your son. And he, comes and he comes in weakness. He's in rags. He's on the ground. He's probably dripping snot and sweat all over the place. He's dusty from a long journey. His sandals probably flowing off two miles back. The Father's just hightailing it, just booking it to embrace His Son. Because when He came in weakness, God was already on His way. When you and I come in repentance, God's already on His way. He's the one who actually draws us. A second way that we might come in weakness, and this is a little, a little more involved. Um, sometimes we come... We we come in strength because we come with with devices, uh, and I don't mean electronic devices, I mean like schemes, or we come with with techniques. Um, We come with uh, ways in which we think we need to access God. Like I, I feel the angst of not being close to God and at home with God, and so here's this here's this uh, uh, tactic that I can take. I can get away to wherever for three days. I can do yoga. I can use essential oils. Um, I can get a babysitter. Um, and those things are, are good, actually, by the way, to like get rest. Right? But like the tactics themselves, like the ways in which we try to come to God and to achieve God's presence is a form of strength, I think, that we need to die to. Um, And I mentioned it at the beginning of the service. The presence of God, when we come in weakness, is not something that we need to, to go up into heaven and bring down to us. Like, for you to be in communion with Jesus Christ, to experience him in your soul, requires almost nothing. And it's more like relaxing into the presence of God. Like, how do I get relaxed, David? Well, maybe some of those things that that you need to do to kind of unwind, right? I would not recommend unwinding with like three episodes of some traumatic show. I would recommend unwinding with silence. It's like, do you make space? Like, do you you plan space? Um, We all, I guarantee you, every single person in this room, I'm so busy. You're gonna say it, you're gonna say it. I'm busy too. We're all gonna say that. I guarantee you that if I lived your day with you, if you lived your day with you, it doesn't even have to be someone else, and you just had a third party perspective, you could get back 60 minutes at least of time that you wasted doing something that you didn't need to do, that actually wasn't life giving, it was probably joy sucking. And you could get that time back and you could sit and make space for communion with God. See, we're throwing on, it's like a fire, we're throwing on logs. We're throwing on all this stuff. And when it's not burning, we got the heat. We got the little thing. It's not burning. What do we do? We just take gasoline, don't we? Take my meds. I'm going to just push through. I'm going to drink 15 cups of coffee. We just pour gasoline on that sucker, and it'll burn, and it'll work for a day. And spiritually, we do this. But then what happens when all that gasoline... Hey, the wood caught. No, it didn't. Gasoline is burning on the wood. But then when the gasoline is gone you've just got dead wood. What we have to do is we have to make space and do the long, slow work of tending the coals and then make space. And in that space, Father Brian used to talk about this, in that space between the heat and the fuel, the air comes in and the spirit of God gives the flame. And so if you will tend the coals of regular prayer and you will make space and you will wait Watch what God does. Watch what God does. Come in weakness. Don't come with some tactic. Don't come with some super complicated devotional whatever. Just make space and watch what God does. The eternally present God is available to you and I right now, and that presence is not something that you and I have to strive after or grasp for. It's something that we can relax into. This quote I want to end with from G. Campbell Morgan says, when my finite heart finds the infinite heart of God, I'm able to trust my finite strength to his infinite strength and my finite mind to his infinite intelligence. Then this is the first fact, this then is the first fact in the platform of prayer that the God of the universe has a bosom, has a heart, and that the Son has spoken to men out of it. attend to that heart and make space and come in weakness and watch what God does. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit.